0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkor. And more importantly, I have the pleasure today of welcoming to the podcast Dr. Divya Cherian, who is Assistant Professor of History at Princeton University. We'll be speaking about a fascinating um, uh, new uh, publication. Uh, by the University of California Press uh, called uh, Merchants of Virtue, Hindus, Muslims and Untouchables in 18th Century India. Divya, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Raj. As you know, I've been hearing your uh, NBN interviews for years now, so it's a real honor to find myself interviewed by you here today.
0: Well, that's good to know because I speak into this little black box that you see on your screen, uh, out of my home office in in, in 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 the Holy city of Toronto. And you really, you know, but for a recent uh, um, conference or two, I I don't really connect with the people who listen. So it's great to know that these people aren't just numbers or bots that they exist like you. So that's good. Um, and also, congratulations on, um, on 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 your book having been awarded the Joseph W. Elder Prize in uh, Indian social sciences by the AWS.
1: Thank you. That was also a wonderful honor. Like, you know, you say you you look, you talk into the black box, we write as <laughs> you on this into a box and is locked away in a room for deck or more than a decade, honestly. So it's nice to have whatever accolades that do come away.
0: <laughs> if 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 for nothing else in the tapasya of, 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 of performing this. Um, okay. so- So tell us a little bit about the backstory of your journey. How did you become interested in this line of research?
1: Um, well, many strands obviously uh, came together. Um, you know, I think for me, for most of those strands was growing up in the city of New Delhi, which honestly is a very old city of Delhi. You know, so you when you live in Delhi, you grow up amid, uh, you grow up in history. So for me, uh, I happened to live in a part of Delhi that was right between Mehroli and Chirag Delhi. So it had um, ruins from the Delhi Sultanate. It had a little bit of built heritage from the Mughals. My school bus would go past the Lodi Gardens. My school would host like wintertime picnics for the children over there so just you know scrambling around these places you know one knew that one knew something these are old buildings my parents are not historians you know in fact they've I don't think we're at all interested in pre-modern South Asian history. So I didn't get too much context or, you know, from them growing up. But when I did finally read the history of the Delhi Sultanate in like seventh or eighth grade, I was just quite blown away because that's when I realized, you know, this is what I'm living. This is how these buildings came to be. Really, it was quite, you know, magical for me. Uh, And so that's how my interest in the pre-colonial pre-modern began, I would say. And really, it's sustained through my undergraduate years. And when it came time for me to specialize, I did decide to do a master's. But honestly, I only did a master's because like for many South Asian families, you know, you have to study. You can't just say that I've done my BA. OK, thanks. Goodbye. So I did my master's. I chose this medieval early modern specialization And then I think I found there to be a gap um, in terms of what I was reading as part of the mainstream curriculum, whether through school, whether through college where I majored in history and whether in my master's, I did not see much direct and full-on engagement with caste. It almost was kind of an uh, appendage to discussions of the economy of taxation. If I did a, there was something on Bhakti, then sure, some caste critique would come in there, but kind of the lived material history of caste, I never felt was the focus. And, and so when it finally came time for me to choose my own research, that's when I honed in on the larger overarching question of the history of caste um, in early modern South Asia, that's in the centuries before colonialism, which in turn, surprisingly, was not my plan, took me into the history of this category, Hindu.
0: So then a number of <laughs> a number of questions that come to mind. Um, I'm going to save the one about the main past issue for a moment. Tell us a little bit about what you're looking at in your research. What what are you studying? What are your sources?
1: My main sources um, is this uh, sort of sequential annualized list of um, records generated by the royal court of the kingdom of Marwar, which is also the name of a region, which is in sort of western and southern um, Rajasthan. Um, And the kingdom was also known by the name of its capital, Jodhpur. Um, And so the royal court here, you know, would dispatch orders to its provincial administrators, its district administrators, and in doing so would compile them into this running record organized by Pargana, or district, and then it would in turn be all compiled into one year's sort of digest. Um, The form that it took are these sort of long registers which are called bahis um, and these begin now actually it's been a while I would say circa 1764 but it's been a while since I wrote my book exact year I I don't remember off the top of my head and they actually continue through the 19th century. I stopped my own study in 1820-ish because this kingdom got incorporated into the British um, Empire in in 1818. And in fact, I had found that in about the decade preceding that conquest, the record series became really actually physically very thin with very few records of the kind that I had found so much of for the decades preceding. That said, it does actually become very large again in the late 19th century that I didn't look at those. But those are the records. They are in a script that is called Old Marwari. It is Devanagari. It's a pre modern script. Um, and uh, the language is also Rajasthani and the particular Marwari dialect. Um, but yeah, I think those are my sources.
0: Great. So, um, what do you discover in your research? What does your, your research unearth? Uh,
1: So, I mean, there's there's a lot, uh, there was in fact, a lot of literal unearthing, it felt like, you know, making my way bit by bit, year by year, day by day, through this very long and large uh, record series. Um, So I would say my overarching claim or argument of finding is that in uh, this sort of Uh, you know, from roughly 1760 to 1818, so in the decade immediately preceding uh, the integration of this region into the uh, colonial um, regime, uh, that the merchants of the region organized collectively and worked in alliance with uh, certain Rajputs, particularly the king, uh, and also locally with Brahmins, in order to remake the regional caste order. And in fact, that remaking happened locality by locality, like town by town. um, And of course, also impinging on the center. They remade the caste order in the following way, which is that they worked to mobilize um, an elite identity uh, named Hindu, as in named as such. And this Hindu identity or Hindu ness was understood by them as is reflected in the orders of this kingdom, in their petitions. This Hindu identity was one that operated in caste terms. That is quite often when we think about the history of this category Hindu, um, we often think of it in binary relationship, whether we think of that explicitly or not, but binary relationship with Muslim, right? But here, the, the other against which the Hindu self seems to define itself is uh, the, the untouchable named as such. And I found, and this was one of those surprises for me, the deployment of a category which literally translates as untouchable called achhep And I found one particular order which really placed the Hindu in direct opposition to the achep, and then further defined what the achep or untouchable is, listing within the category leather workers, certain vagrant landless castes, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, clearers of human waste, such as the Bhangis and Halal Khors, as they are also called, and the Musalman or the Turak. So this, again, was to me very interesting that the otherness of the Muslim was expressed in these records in this period, in the understanding of the ruling elite of this region as um. Uh, So the otherness of the Muslim was understood in caste terms, so the Muslim and the untouchable kind of reinforced themselves to form the other against whom this um, Hindu is being defined. Uh, So that I think was my central claim, was the articulation through law and through the active organization and petitioning and kind of agency of mercantile groups of the remaking and the definition of the Hindu um, and the articulation of the Hindu in caste terms.
0: That's fascinating for so many reasons. I'll have to pick one for the next question. Tell us about the agency of the merchants. Tell us about uh, their standing, their agency, their their impetus. Uh, what are they hoping to accomplish, and, and why are they doing this? And was it easy for them? And and where do they fit into the caste system, or you know, whatever uh, riff off of that as you will.
1: Sure. Um. So the merchants is of course you know in, in English language. do There's a lot of translation. Those of us who work on the non-West or, you know, that, that goes on, you know, and there are a lot of questions about categories. But the merchant here, what I am translating is, in fact, a term that occurs widely in my sources, which is Mahajan. Okay, Mahajan means literally great man, but is a term that is kind of an umbrella term uh, that encompasses various mercantile castes of Marwar, most of whom are Vaishnav or Jain. Uh, of course, in practice, that category of merchant also included non uh, you know mercantile castes. So that is, it included Brahmin communities, particularly in this region that had historically traded. So, particularly the Pallival Brahmins of Marwar are known as a historically trading community. Uh, there's another one called Nandwana Bohra, which is actually a Bra- Brahmin trading community. But these were a very small subset within this larger category of. Like occupationally mercantile groups. So when I say merchant, this is what I mean. And in terms of their agency, what I mean is that um, it's interesting. There are there's a set of different kinds of petitions uh, that come before this court. Or sometimes the district functionaries of the court send a report to the crown, uh, saying that these people have come together in a collective, and they are petitioning for the following thing so sometimes they will simply come together and ask for a change. This change could be in residential patterns, this change could be in terms of water access, essentially saying that it doesn't suit us or it doesn't behoove us or it is beneath our dignity or even it is against our dharma to draw water, for example, from the same side of the uh, water body as the the lowly uh, and sometimes it will be niche um, or the acheph. Um, or, or the kameen, which means working, but actually here means lowly. That's it's a term we use in everyday language. Sometimes the kameena, without thinking, but actually here kameen means working groups who are lowly. So it, it's beneath us to draw water from the same side. Um, as these people. Um, Then there are other examples in which they come together and use their money uh, to say, we will fund the construction of a new well, because we don't want to be drawing water from the same step well as those people, um, using terms like, you know, caste terms like, like lowly. So I think, um, you know, in terms of agency, this kind of collective action, the use of uh, monetary resources and most importantly uh, I, I and there is a more indirect kind of you know sort of um, agency that is deployed which is that when i use the term state uh, and i spent some time in the book showing that the state we need to unpack what this word means and because the state in early modern rajasthan and in 18th century rajasthan in particular since roughly the 16th century had come to be constituted in its sort of skeletal form by merchants themselves. So, uh, and this has been shown by other historians and it's actually also true for the regional neighborhood polities in this entire Rajasthan area at the very least. So, which is that the groups that actually ran the administration, not not just accounts or such like that we would traditionally associate with mercantile groups, but administration of all sorts, including ministerial roles, um, district leadership, uh, being the equivalent of prime minister, Um, All of this work was done by men of these Jain mercantile communities. So that is also a key type of agency that is being exercised, which is through this sort of anonymized role as, you know, governor or magistrate uh, of a district um, or, or sort of the person at the capital, who is dispatching the order? Uh, so I would say these are the various kinds of um, agency that I see in terms of what they're trying to achieve. Do you want me to say more, or I could? Yeah, talk?
0: well, that, that, yeah, I was going to circle back, and I'll ask in a moment. But I just want to comment. Thank you for unpacking that because it, if with the cursory knowledge of Hinduism, or if uh, someone in a different subfield might see, okay, well, untouchability, caste, merchant, these are vishas but clearly that they operate in a way that, that bucks the distinction between you know the the the, the, the classification of of Kshatriya versus vaishya and this is a sort of unique function uh, where although they're invoking perhaps caste in order to um in order to advance this idea or this cudgel of untouchability uh, they're they're not really uh, driving within the lane of a particular. And of course, as we know, um, texts are more prescriptive than descriptive often. And in classical Hindu texts, I mean, uh, who knows if anybody ever left their home at, at, at 50 or 75? Like, but that's to say, it's fascinating that they're invoking a system without really any concern of operating within it the way that we would consider that system from a sort of intro Hinduism point of view, would you say?
1: Absolutely. And I I think there's something about that kind of troubling of um, boundaries, you know, that they they enact, uh, that is not just sure, to a certain extent, one can say that, you know, lived caste is very different from prescribed caste, like textually prescribed Varna, for example. So as historians, as scholars, we would not be shocked if we see, you know, a person who technically has X caste identity actually doing Y function, right? But here, I think there is actually a degree of breaching that is happening. um, And that it reaches a, a sort of a uh, cemented enough um, uh, kind of status and it becomes wide scale enough that, that that kind of control over state power, not just access to, but control over state power is significant. And I think is part of what is driving um, this quest to uh, further, you know, this quest to kind of justify and normalize that we have gone beyond our assigned status. You know, We have gone from mercantile Into the realm of the kshatriya. Um, And we are now, uh, you know, we need to, in ideological terms, in kind of the um, terms of the sort of, you know, the principles underlying the caste order, we need to uh, justify, legitimize that. And that is, those are exactly the processes I'm trying to trace. That is, the sociological shift has been made, the political shift has been made, but the ideological shift is what is being uh, sort of sought after. Through the processes uh, that I trace in the book, so so you're, that's exactly what I was um, trying to say that they are out of place and they need to remake place in order to, you know, make that acceptable and normalized.
0: Great, perfect on ramp to, and you've touched on this, of course. But um, 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 the naive question I was going to ask before the previous segue was along the lines of, so what do they want? What do these merchants want? What are they after? Why are they doing this? <laughs>
1: Ah, so exactly. So I mean, I would say that, um, you know, it is precisely that in by the time we come to the mid 18th century, we have a situation in which, you know, the Mohal state has now shrunk to being in the Delhi region, it no longer has the kind of taxing ability that, for example, we know that it did in the 17th century to cut, for example, North Indian mercantile magnates to size it doesn't have that arbitrary taxation ability. Similarly, even the regional kingdom of this, you know, this Rajput kingdom of Marwar, it too is facing a lot of onslaughts from the Marathas who are on the rise and who are clearly militarily dominant over these people. From time to time, they have to pay tributes to them. And no matter, you know, whatever pretensions to grandeur that these regional Rajput polities have, they are actually more on the defensive. So there's a lot to deal with. that I think uh, that the merchants have kind of a space, they kind of have room in which to to grow and to become that pillar of the polity that uh, the ruling, you know, the king needs. Um, And also there's been a dynamic at play in most of the Rajasthani regional polities, but definitely also in Marwar, which is that the reason the king, the, the Rajput royal king, leans on these mercantile groups from roughly the 16th century is precisely due to the slow shift from a fraternal clan based order to a monarchy, to, you know, so this is something, as I said, that begins in the 16th century and the historical reasons for it are many and complicated, but as, you know, the king tries to separate himself above his Rajput brothers and cousins, all of whom in the older Rajput ethic of things had an equal claim to parcels of territory conquered by them as a group. As the king tries to elevate himself over all of these people, he needs to undercut their power, which has a basis in that, you know, that Rajput. Kingly, the Rajput ethic of equal equal division of shares so the way to undercut power is to draw in a group that is a dependent group that is not Rajput that is does not have that claim to you know being first to being among equals and that group is the mercantile um group um so um I feel like I have gone a little bit off the trajectory of because your original question was what do we the want?
0: The, uh, the questions on this podcast are always meant to be generative. And okay. So, really, you're saying fascinating and um, um, obviously um, applicable things to your research. So, so, so continue, and then, and then I'll interject, but finish that thought.
1: Sure. So, you know, they um, so so, you know, so that's sort of the history of how that kind of, uh, you know, slow move um, of of these mercantile groups, um, you know, comes into being. Uh, But but I think so what they what they really want is now. So that slow move has started by the 18th century. They are no longer the dependent group that was drawn in by this royal family, but rather they are really sort of this big Uh, group uh, that constitutes, you know, the machinery of the state on the ground, and they are important at court also, like, you know, kind of like nobles and, and sort of players in terms of like court politics. So I think what I'm trying to suggest is that what they want is to, um, as I said in my previous answer, is that they have this claim to now being among, you know, the highest echelons of the region's uh, political order. Part of the reason for that also is the immense wealth they have come to control uh, due to, you know, we know about the diasporic spread of Marwadis, you know, across North India and by actually even beyond India um, in this period, uh, including like, uh, you know, Central India, etc. So as I had mentioned, with the collapse of the Mughal state, that wealth increasingly starts to be and that kind of role in moving money, et cetera, comes to be more and more um, in the hands of Marwari diasporic mercantile firms. So that money, because it's a diaspora and it retains the ties with the homeland is also coming into Marwad. So that combination of economic and fiscal strength and political strength Is what enables that kind of move up, but then, as I said, there's kind of a need to make an ideological justification and the way that is made is through you know the elevation of the kind of the caste ethic of the mercantile communities into into um, kind of being one of the aspects of elite caste status in the region so specifically cultures of vegetarianism cultures of bodily austerity you know by which i mean chastity not drinking living simply um, and most importantly non non violence non harm or vegetarianism these come to be uh, normalized through the processes i argue that i trace in the book these come to be normalized as not just oh, what merchants do but what everyone must do if they want to be considered uh, as sort of part of the respectable elite of um, the region.
0: Yeah, I, I, this is utterly fascinating on a number of levels. One, obviously it's um, groundbreaking work illumining a particular uh, process um, uh, in, in in 18th century South Asia. Um, but then uh, it, it, also this is, you know, you take a look at this and this is, uh, this is a glaring, uh, glaringly insightful case study on the mechanics of power the mechanics of hierarchical power the mechanics of social groups um uh, wherein uh, those at the top um are on the at the top typically on the backs of those beneath them and of course need to justify that there has to be justification for that and if the justification isn't evident other than a power grab or, or, you know, whoever has more money, then what do we do? It's an age old story. I mean, turn on the news, look out the window. What do we do? We invoke the sacred. We invoke the things people care more about. We, in this case, what I would think of as ascetic ideology, sort of the, the you know, the, 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 the psycho-spiritual strand of, of Indic thought where this is what, um, this is what virtue looks like. And it's utterly fascinating that they're invoking that as uh, power-wielding, uh, money-wielding householders, and they're invoking ascetic ideology to to to, to pit themselves against um, those who they'd rather other. Fascinating.
1: Absolutely, and so and it's two things. I mean, actually, I would say. Two things, yeah, one is that it's not even that they're pitting themselves against the other, they're really pitting themselves against kind of old order elites. That's the real rival here. The other is an, usually it's beating down. It's beating down on m- most of the people at, on the receiving end of this, you know, the who are othered are already on a back foot. So they're not even the, pro- they're not even the enemy. They're kind of the means to the end. The enemy is the already existing gatekeepers, right? Uh, I would say one that, but B, the other thing I would say is that there is also a disciplining of the self, which looks pretty harsh. I mean, it's much harsher on the other, but it's not as though there is a consistent, to the virtues being aspired to or proclaimed by all members of this upwardly mobile elite including the brahmins that are in the picture you know there is there are many and so i've divided the book into two halves self and other
0: I that, mean actually actually that, that was my next question so this is a great opportunity to answer so how's the book structured <laughs>
1: Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Yeah, so I divided it into um, two halves, actually, other and first other and then self. Um, And I would say, and I think before the two halves, there's one kind of standalone chapter um, uh, in which I give a sense of the sort of all of this, you know, background that I gave you about sort of what is the state like, you know, what is uh, the long history coming into this moment, you know, what are all the things that converge to produce what the two parts of the book show. Um, So, yeah, exactly as I was saying, you know, I divided into other and self and to link to the previous answer, in the self part, I show how there is a a tremendous disciplining of the self, where it is not just the state, and that is the difference between self and other. It's not just the state, but it is the caste bodies of the merchants and the Brahmins who are also playing actually the first role in enforcing adherence to these fast ethics uh, which are all actually sort of um justified sometimes explicitly sometimes not uh, through you know reference to these kinds of um virtues such as chastity purity um uh, and non-harm so um i think um, yeah so that's the the self and then the first half of the book other is where i show how these same axes are actually used to justify exclusion um of, of the other which i define as um Essentially, I mean, there are certain others who are always othered, right? And there are some who are kind of in a shifting in-between zone. And the ones who are always othered are those who I find are actually listed in a key command that I put in the introduction to the book, um, who are uh, the leather workers, um, The I think I already mentioned the landless vagrant, certain landless vagrant castes, The night soil clearers or sort of removers of human waste. Uh, And finally, the Turak or the Musulman. These four groups seem to consistently be among the always other, like there is no question that they are, you know, they are un-Hindu. They are kind of the anti Hindu or the antithesis of, of Hindu. Then there's kind of an in-between group of artisanal communities who are sometimes in fact presented as completely unaware. They are not you know part of the most elite domain but in others it's kind of left open-ended how excluded they are. But in that othering and I don't and the, and the reason I use other is is I want to show as you said you know the the kind of constitutive power dynamic at play. How are people othered? So they're kind of the ways in which um, they are pushed out from access to water bodies. Uh, they are segregated in terms of residential space. Um, there is also a segregation of ritual spaces and ritual objects, even ritual soundscape in one example, the one with which I begin in my uh, the introduction. Um, And then there is also an oppression uh, so which is distinct from othering it's you can call it an ethical exclusion, but there is this idea that these same communities are also um, immutably inherently given to sort of, you know. Unethical behavior and a particular unethical behavior, which is the commission of violence against living beings, which in these sources is described as Jeev Hansya, as in the term in these sources is Jeev Hansya. And it's interesting that anytime a person is accused of that, this keyword Jeev Hansya is always used in those orders. Um, so, So these groups are singled out for not just committing violence against animals, but for being inherently given, so kind of preemptively punished, if not in the case of certain communities banished from the kingdom. Now, of course, this is a pre-modern polity. It's a pre-colonial polity. So the kind of the ability of the state to see and to execute to the extent that a modern state is eventually able to is simply not present. But the effort is certainly made. These are not just orders that are issued. You know, like we know, for example, Ashoka saying, oh, if you please be vegetarian, if you can. Here, there's an actual effort people are sent out Subjects are arrested. There are actual banishment drives. Uh, people are fined. Like this stuff is happening, uh, and that to me, I think, was a very important aspect of the the othering part of this.
0: Uh, the question I want to ask will require some conjecture, of course, um, but I'm going to ask it. So we'll get a little bit. Uh, we'll go down this lane. So, so is your sense from your own research and uh, you know your journey that this uh, invoking of ahimsa Know this sort of othering of you know the the uh, the, 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 the animal killer. That yeah. it's not just something that they do; it's something that they are. You people are animal killers. that's part of your identity. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense that this is um, solely a political strategy? It's useful to invoke this for their their aims, as you outlined. Or does do you get a whiff or a sense at all that there was actual concern or 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 sort of sincerity about? this harm? It may be impossible for you to know, but I can't help but ask.
1: Uh, I mean, obviously, yeah. First of all, that's impossible to say. I would say, however, that for the merchant groups, definitely, it's not even, it's so, it's been for centuries by this, even by the 18th century, for centuries, many, many centuries, you know, Jains have strictly adhered to Uh, non-violence, ahimsa, non-harm ethic. So I don't even think that it's a utilitarian or convenient for this, you know, calculated kind of stance. Similarly, even Vaishnavs, who are the other key actors here, you know, uh, even like from the time of Kabir, we know that uh, vegetarianism is important. Uh, to Vaishnava and and kind of bhakti devotional stances, which too have been around for centuries by the time we come to the 18th century. So it doesn't quite feel as deliberate, like utilitarian and planned. But I think what feels maybe more at the level of, you know, calculation or maybe differential uh, behaviors, okay, is that people who belong to these communities do occasionally commit violence against animals, okay? The constant struggle against meat-eating, we know is a real one, you know? If we read um, something like the Kathanak, not with reference to meat-eating, but, you get such a sense of the human struggles of following even the path of a Jain householder, you know. So there are uh, Vaishnavs and Jains who mess up, shall we say, you know, but their treatment by the, by the state, for example, is very different than that of those who belong to these uh, sort of uh, stigmatized communities, right? So yes, they might be uh, sort of, they will face that discipline from their caste if they are found out, but there are some strategies they can use. One is to say, I never did this this is a false accusation, and you know it gets caught up in. You can never really verify it. Some people are mollified. It wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't me exactly. The first and oldest excuse. You know, people are mollified. This that is done, and case is closed. And there's one like that about some guy who's actually finally caught drinking, like in, in which I included in the book. So one is that set of strategies. Um, uh, the other, and which was the, yeah, is that you can pay a fine and move on you know and that is less so that's the other distinction between these merchant brahmin groups is they will say no no wasn't me sorry you got to prove it it wasn't me but the artisanal communities frequently just pay a fine and they close the case and they move on but these stigmatized communities that is not enough for them they are they are usually given much more harsh fines you know much higher amounts of pay i mean that the fines that they have to pay or expulsion from the kingdom or even arrest which is really a rare punishment you know in these in the pre-colonial polities, it was expensive for the state to keep people in jail. So at most you were arrested for a short time before some proper uh, so-called punishment was found. Um, So I would say that, you know, that is where the kind of intentionality or the double standard of these, you know, ethical uh, precepts uh, becomes visible. But I wouldn't say that it's kind of a convenient, uh, that this is that much by design, you know, like a game plan that is being executed uh, by a community. I would say it's more like a historical process. Mm. Uh, but that said, I mean, to me, and I hear maybe we're jumping out of the 18th century, it was noteworthy. You know, I read this ethnography by um, an anthropologist Parvish uh, ghassem Fachandi uh, who teaches at Rutgers and um, it is an ethnography of the 2002 Gujarat riots. And he happened to be there. Obviously, no one plans to be there for such a thing, right? He happened to be there and he happened to then write an ethnography. And in that, he mentions how the people he interviewed uh, kind of retrospectively, after the thing, we're like, you know, what happened to Muslims was justified because they hurt animals. Uh, and so this idea of kind of that innate violence marking an entire community, it, uh, you know, uh, it's that there is a, a a consciousness of that connection that is at least made in the present. I obviously cannot say that for the pre-modern, pre-colonial past.
0: Well, certainly we see, certainly, I mean, what do I look at? Like a, you know, uh, uh, narrative texts. I look at uh, Mahabharata, Puranas, uh, epics, and for me, it's all about the imaginaire, It's all about the ideals, right? So, without question, this is a staunch ideal from from, from much earlier than this period. So, unsurprisingly, it would be in invoked. Um, so, uh, this this category of Hindu, this the, the, this iteration, this ideation, this reflection, this crystallization, this formation of the category of Hindu in this context, um. Is it really novel? Is it, is it, is it, is it, is it building on antecedents? Is, it, is it, It's such a fraught word for a variety of reasons. And so could you comment a little bit about the, the novelty of what's happening here with this term?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, I do have a section, I forget which part of the book in which I try to, you know, trace what is the history of the use of this term, like in pre-modern, pre-colonial South Asia. So certainly, I do point to the ways in which A, you have the use of the term itself, and B, you have a sense of a kind of a coming together, even if without a name, right? And there are many histories, uh, you know, we have kind of, Pollock's article on the Ramayana, we have Andrew Nicholson's idea of the different philosophical schools, you know, we have um, Cynthia Talbot and Philip Wagner with their, another thing of the use of the term Hindu in the medieval context in, uh, you know, inscriptions from Vijayanagar and uh, Andhra and all of that. Uh, And then we have actually scholarship from uh, 16th, 17th century, particularly 17th century Rajasthan, in which uh, court uh, chronicles use this term Hindu, sometimes in binary relationship with Muslim, right? So the term is certainly in use. Uh, uh, I think some people just mention it, some people who try to unpack it in their scholarship i think to me what is new what i hope is new are two things one is that you know in those it, it, the the thing that comes across unsaid is the that the hindu is working in dialectical relationship with the muslim right so For example, the Wagner, the Wagner article, which is, he uses this, he highlights the use of this term or this phrase, um, Hindu Raya Suratrana, that is Hindu uh, king among sultans. or yeah, something like that, right? Uh, Sultan among kings, whatever. But you get that the sultan there is doing the work of kind of evoking the Muslim sovereign. um, And here is a Hindu uh, version of that. Right. Uh, So I think generally, even in the Rajput chronicles, it seems to be in opposition to Muslim others, you know. Uh, So I think for me, what I hope I have found that is new is that here the other quite explicitly is the untouchable and not the Muslim as Muslim. The Muslim is configured as part of the untouchable. And maybe as a standalone category, you know, reinforces the otherness of they both these untouchable and Muslim mutually reinforce each other's otherness right towards the Hindu Um, so but that role of the untouchable in thinking about the Hindu self and its boundaries I hope and in the pre-colonial past I hope is something new and here also I will I will point to the uh, to the other some other scholarship from Sanskrit I'm thinking here of Basile Leclerc has done a little bit and there are other sources that show that in Sanskrit sources sometimes Muslims are represented as speaking in the same lower register or dialect as is used for low caste um, characters Uh, in, for example, Sanskrit plays and Sanskrit tropes. So there is something there from even 12th, 13th century where the Muslim is understood, some Muslims, not all, because there are also examples where Muslim kings are praised and compared to Hindu deities in Sanskrit uh, texts. But in some cases, that otherness of the Muslim could be configured in ways that are legible as caste. So there is a precedent to it, but to see it so explicitly spelled out was one new thing. The other new thing was the use of this term Hindu, and also its otherness against the untouchable in legal sources. So we're not talking here about some court chronicle or a literary play or a adaptation of an epic, you know, we're talking about the operationalizing of these categories and of uh, these understandings in the administration of everyday social life like actual social conflicts in which people come to the state or the state hears of a problem and is guided in its action by this thinking that I hope is uh, something new
0: what um subfields does this book impact otherwise but who might be interested in reading this book
1: Uh, So, um, you know, very largely, uh, you know, early modern South Asia scholars, by which I mean, you know, 15th to the um, uh, end of the 18th century scholars, I hope, Uh, but with that, to my mind also includes scholars of uh, Hindu religion in that time period, even though these tend to often work as separate fields, you know, there are the historians, then there are the, you know, the Hindu studies scholars, but I would, these two, I would see as my primary uh, interlocutors. Uh, But then there are also scholars of text, you know, um, early modern literature, uh, who can sometimes be placed in different departments, uh, who I think uh, hopefully would also be, uh, would find that something useful about some of the conceptualizations uh, that I'm tracing in this book. I also hope it is of interest to historians of caste, particularly the transformations in caste in uh, the colonial era, because I, as you know, there is a lot of work maybe it was at a certain point on kind of how does caste change with modernity? You know, it's one of those classic where caste is the index of the unchanging pre-modern and boom, you know, modernity comes along and you have caste changing, you know, and then there's all these, but I think that such work on on the modern uh, transformation of caste needs to be premised on understandings of pre-modern caste. Again, I'm not the only scholar, but I hope very much that my Uh, findings about pre-colonial caste will be useful to anybody interested in uh, what happens to caste in uh, the British colonial era.
0: What particularly surprised you about this? What struck you about this research? I mean, you've touched on a number of things, obviously they're novel, but you know, what sort of, what occurred for you in this process, in this journey of research that really changed your thinking or sources wise or ideas wise, or what was remarkable about this?
1: I mean, I think um, there are so many answers. So one was just at the level of, you know, like moments in the archives where I was like blown away, you know, I think there were so many, so many points. So first was even that I genuinely went in thinking I would write a history of, you know, the, you know, of kind of the, the fluidity of caste, you know, I would completely push against any idea that there was, you know, fixity and, you know, I was really good. That was my mission. I went in, you know,
0: but But the data got in the way. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, no, genuinely, I really thought that, you know, the histories that have argued for fluidity tended to be based on modern Indian sources, colonial era sources, but there is a flaw in that design, I thought. We need to look at pre-colonial sources to argue for pre-colonial fluidity, and I was going to be the one who was going to do that. But I went in, and while, of course, I see a lot of fluidity, let me add, you know, but at the same time, this kind of legal conjuring of the untouchable and the actual enforcement of boundaries, i think that was a surprise second was as i had said i had not gone in expecting i really thought that the because you know caste transcends hindu muslim divisions it's in all religions of south asia so i genuinely thought that yeah religion will be kind of epiphenomenal you know i have nothing to do with histories of hinduism and all of that at the same time I had taken a class with professor Jack Hawley at Columbia you know which had really been a very enriching experience for me in which I learned you know we read bhakti texts i you know i chose to write a paper about how did bhakti influence the royal family of jodhpur cuz i knew i was going to write about jodhpur for my phd And that, I think, made me realize you cannot write bhakti and kind of, you know, the Vaishnav devotionalism moment of early modern India out of this. So I kept it in mind, really, and I always made it a point to note down anything I found about Krishna, devotion, Vaishnav, various sects, this, that. But I think the way in which the word Hindu was used, I think that was yet another surprise to me, because really there is a strand, maybe an oversimplified strand of scholarship, which believes that this term Hindu in its use was it was also a colonial construct, you know, I understand that a sort of reified idea of Hinduism, all of that is a colonial construct, but the term itself and the idea of some kind of loose, you know, congealing around it, I think, you know, some scholars seem to believe it's uh, entirely so I think that was this kind of unequivocal use of it was very uh, eye opening for me. The third was, and that's a, a building block of my argument, but there was a, a discussion of abortion in these archives, which was a true surprise to me. I never thought that India at any point was that concerned with abortion. Sure, I would not be surprised if somewhere and some dusty text is considered unethical, but growing up in India, and I don't believe I was sheltered in in this regard, you know. uh, abortion was at most linked to, you know, sexual promiscuity, and therefore it could be a type of shaming that this woman has had to have an abortion because she had sex out of a sanctioned relationship, but not the abortion itself was not uh, stigmatized as an act of murder as it is in America today. So for me to find that abortion itself is the problem you know and women were there was actually similarly to the kind of the you know the vegetarian thing there were neighbors who complained to the state there were state agents who caught people for having committed you know retrospectively for having committed abortion um and then the kinds of fines that were sort of levied and and that whole exercise i think was very surprising to me i never knew you know and then when i could look more into it i realized that in the peshwa deccan as well there was a similar kind of stance towards abortion and who knows maybe there are similar Histories in other parts of South Asia, so I think that too was somewhat uh, interesting. And then it becomes interesting to me that where did that concern go? Because we never read about this from uh, you know maybe colonial era uh, historians. Uh, so so those were some of the big kind of you know. And then the whole non vegetarian vegetarian thing. I mean that was like mind blowing. I still remember like what is this Jeev And I have a fat stack, fat stack of records in which this state is hunting down people for killing animals, including most of them, I will say, is for animals we would eat. But a small number are for things like bed bugs and scorpions and snakes, like things that would harm you or even pests that would eat your crop. You're not allowed to hurt them. And this just was very fascinating. So just at an archival, like, findings level, these things were, in terms of the sources, I think it was, to me, very revelatory that if you need to spend, one needs to spend a lot of time in these... Dusty stacks of paper, and that, and there are records like this for multiple kingdoms in Rajasthan. That you know, there is it is very rewarding. You know, whereas a lot of scholars I know who were writing early modern South Asian histories were writing out of chronicles and sort of literary texts, you know, things you could even take pictures of or scan and then sit anywhere in the world and, and read them. And I'm not saying that's a problem, but just to me, I realized just how much unexamined and intra- interesting material lies in the kinds of sources I read.
0: Ah, who, who knows what remains in the chronicles of history known and unknown and, you know, of my my mindset and my my mo with much of what i do is just really resonating with elements of the human experience and seeing them pop up in different places and sometimes we can plot a trajectory of oh we got this from this culture or this you know but 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 then there then we find these 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 phenomena such as a concern about abortion in 18th century uh, South Asia. And one thinks, well, certainly this is as old as time in certain senses, perhaps we don't know, we don't have the evidence, but there are certain concerns that humans have, a, v- a variety of which probably societies have always had to deal with whether we have evidence of it or not. But either way, I, I, I agree, it's it's astonishing. All the things you say are are literally re- remarkable, worth remarking upon. The other thing that I find fascinating is I'm immune to the fact that my podcast is called Indian Religions, and I basically will interview anything interesting having to do with South Asia, but however problematic the term religion is, however problematic the term Hindu is, which is why I changed it from Hindu studies to Indian Religions, uh, those boundaries are completely blurred in terms of South Asian culture and, and, and Indian religions uh, much more. So I'd say in this context than in perhaps other contexts. And I was uh, ever so slightly flabbergasted that I um, had emailed a scholar, a good fine scholar uh, on, on, on a work uh, on a fascinating historical figure in South Asia. And I can count on one hand, the number of people who've declined and the reason they gave is that they don't do religion and they don't talk about religion. And I I thought to myself, well, I'm not gonna make you talk about religious studies. We want to learn about this figure. Without question, it'll have implications for uh, uh, various disciplines. But I I find it fascinating that I'm just synchronistically just processing that response uh, uh, about a day ago. And then here you are saying, listen, I didn't plan to do religion. I'm an historian and and here we are. So anyhow, uh, enough from me. Um, Feel free to respond to whatever you'd like. Um, and 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 thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today.
1: Um, sure, no, I guess, um, I mean, I, I, without knowing the context that you're talking about, well, I think it's also the moment that we're writing in, right? Mm. I mean, I wonder if the hesitation of the people so much was with the fraught category of religion, mm. as it was, with. I don't know who the figure is, but clearly there's a lot at stake in terms of discussing the, the figure and, you know, this uh, writing about Indian religions, plural, but certain religions more so, is uh, opening up a can of worms uh, for scholars it's it has become a very hostile climate in which to write mm. so mm. you know one can't help but um, i mean there could be multiple responses sure. one could be frustration one could be empathy at a human level people fear you know denial of access to their to the country of research or the country of origin uh, you know through cancellation of visas and uh, denial of research visas who knows these things are starting to be done um so maybe uh, you know that is the context but as for me maybe because i'm trained as a historian maybe i feel more kind of brave in uh, you know entering this uh, whole new uh you
0: know it's 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 a it's a collegial podcast which has featured the work of so many from so many subfields. i mean whatever if i need to re- rename it the indology podcast i'll rename it the end Indo- i'll do whatever indian culture whatever you know I'll, i want to create space for people and i do understand their, their concerns perhaps and so thank you for thank you for reminding of those concerns and thank you very much for being on the podcast today
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
0: For those listening, we've of course been speaking uh, with Dr. Divya Charyan, who is uh, a professor of history at um, at uh, Princeton University. We've been speaking about this brand new, fascinating work, Merchants of Virtue. And uh, if you're remotely interested, you can actually just click on the link in the podcast notes and download it. Boom, for free. Um, uh, thanks to uh, Luminos, the, the University of California Press's open access publishing program. Until next time. Um, keep, keep reading, keep listening, um, and, and keep contemplating, um, systems of power, ancient and modern take care.